Lori Vallow has a motions hearing coming up. One of the motions gives me a little bit of pause. The Idaho student homicide was a targeted killing, according to police. They just don't know who the target was. The former Delphi mayor is now the Delphi prosecutor. Alec Murdoch's attorneys say the police destroyed exculpatory evidence. Could it be a big deal? And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. And well, you know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't, like if you do, hit that little bell so that you receive notifications when we go live or put up new content. And as always, leave me a comment below. Quick reminder, we'll be going live 6 p.m. Mountain Time tomorrow discussing all the cases that you want to talk about. Let's support our sponsors that support Crime Talk. Like many Americans, we got a dog during the pandemic. My quarantine dog, Miss Winnie the Bulldog. Now, Miss Winnie has grown accustomed to being around us all the time. When we were leaving the house, Winnie would have extreme anxiety, so we decided to look for natural products to help with her anxiety. We looked for the highest quality CBD treats, and we were not satisfied, and neither was Winnie. So we created a high-quality CBD product that absorbs faster and provides the required results faster. Baked in Colorado CBD treats and beverage enhancers are made with nanotechnology. The nanotechnology makes the CBD extraction more pure, also allows for Baked in Colorado products to work faster. Baked in Colorado products can help reduce your pet's anxiety, ease joint pain, and help with your dog's skin problems. Go to our online store and see what Baked in Colorado product is best for your dog. When you order at bakedincolorado.com, enter code WINNIE and receive 15% off your first order. We have a 30-day money-back guarantee. If your dog does not experience the desired results in 30 days, return the product and we will refund your money. No questions asked. Let's go ahead and open the record for Monday, November 28th, 2022. Well, the following motions will be heard on Thursday, December 8th, 2022, at 9.30 a.m. at the Fremont County Courthouse located in St. Anthony, Idaho, before the Honorable Judge Boyce. Some of the motions that are going to be heard are first, a motion for a bill of particulars filed September 2nd on behalf of Lori Vallow. Second, a motion to prevent the death qualification of jurors filed September 26, 2022. And most interestingly, a motion to compel filed November 22nd of 2022, and then the long, lengthy motion that was uh, filed by uh, Lori Vallow's attorneys, which is a motion to declare the death penalty unconstitutional. All right, first, so what is a bill of particulars? Well, in every case in a criminal matter, there is either a criminal complaint and information or an indictment. And in each and every one of those cases, the defendant has the right to ask for a bill of particulars. It is essentially a request for further clarification on the details of the alleged crime. Now, you normally these type of situations come up where there's just nothing in the discovery that supports the allegations made. Or, for example, the district attorney cites to a specific statute, but there are many subsections that the statute could apply, and you have no idea which one they intend to proceed upon. So that's normally when they file a motion for a bill of particulars. Well, according to Lori Vallow's attorneys, the language of the indictment is confusing 
as to several counts and they need clarification. Obviously, the government is entitled to plead allegations in the alternative, which is, well, you know, if it wasn't first degree murder, then it was second degree murder, something along those lines. And the defendant has a right to know what she is being charged with in this particular case. Now, the murder counts in the indictment are all pled in the alternative, which essentially means that the state of Idaho doesn't know who did what. They're basically saying, well, maybe it was this or maybe it was that. So first, this case was brought, obviously, by the grand jury indictment. And this is obviously a secret proceeding, which was not subject to judicial review or cross-examination by the defense attorneys. Then the language in the indictment, they allege, is confusing as to several counts, and they want clarification. And Ms. Vowell's attorneys are saying, hey, you know, as the defendant, we have a right to know exactly what she's being charged with. The murder in the indictment are all pled in the alternative. Second, there are three separate allegations of murder which are alleged to have occurred in three separate dates. The conspiracy to commit those crimes were alleged to have occurred over a two-year period, and, and there are allegations of a grand theft and conspiracy to commit grand theft. There are at least two co-conspirators, one of which has been named in the indictment posthumously, and there are known unnamed co-conspirators as well as unknown conspirators, according to the indictment. And third, the discovery in this case, uh, the defense alleges voluminous to say, and discovery is still ongoing. And as of the date of it that they filed their motion, the defense has nearly five terabytes of electronic material. And they say, hey, judge, just to give you a flavor here, a terabyte is approximately one trillion bytes of information and could store 1,000 copies of Encyclopedia Britannica. Easy for me to say. Much of the discovery has been gathered over, of course, several years, and the defense is in a position of sorting through all of the discovery, which the prosecution has had the entire time. So a bill of particulars would narrow down the possible alternative theories that uh, Ms. Vallow would be required to defend against. Fourth, Ms. Vallow has been incarcerated, and um, it makes it difficult regarding the technical uh, review of this material. And taken together, these factors create a perfect storm of difficulties in preparing for a trial. And obviously, without bail of a particular um, identifying and laid out issues uh, the government actually intends to assert at trial, the defense will face a near impossible task of preparing to defend against dozens of potential scenarios. It also uh, needs to avoid unfair surprise at trial. And a purpose of the bill of particulars would be that. So under the current indictment, the government could change the theory, which is alleging murder or conspiracy at its whim between now and trial, according to uh, the defense, which puts in a grave danger of unfair surprise. And obviously, the prosecutors are pursuing the highest, final, and harshest penalty allowed uh, in our country. That is the death penalty. And basically, they're saying, hey, we have a right to know exactly what you are uh, going to present at trial uh, to prepare for that. So Lori Vallis saying as to count one of the indictment, the government lawyers claim that there was an alleged conspiracy to take the life of Tylee Ryan and to commit grand theft of her monies by deception among Chad DeBell, Lori Vallow, and Alex Cox, and other co-conspirators, both known and unknown. Between October 26th of 2018, continuing until January 15th of 2020, uh, and they include the words of elsewhere, including Fremont County, which is kind of interesting. It is necessary that the defense counsel be able and certain that the requirements of the statute, court rules, and rules of evidence governing said conspiracy and conspiracies be satisfied 
in that the government must identify with plain, concise, and definite language statements of the essential facts constituting the offense charged. And then the defense cites to Idaho Rules of Criminal Procedure 7B. It says, while the government is permitted to speculate as to the means of how the crime was committed, they are not permitted to speculate as to the specific actors or actors to be so vague in their description of the event as to make the defense prepare for every possible scenario in every portion of the state of Idaho. The defense also alleged that the government has failed to identify indispensable parties, those being um, co-conspirators, as well as defining with particularity using plain, concise, and definitive statements, facts, dates, and alleged of the alleged conspiracy and when they occurred. The language in the indictment they allege says sometime between October 28th and January of 2020. The government has further failed to identify where within the 1,369 square mile area of Madison and Fremont counties, this alleged conspiracy occurred, not to mention elsewhere language which is alleged to have occurred. The defense assumes somewhere within the state of Idaho. The defense requests that the government be required to outline with particularity any facts that support the conspiracy with regard to the overt act. The indictment states that Lori Vallow endorsed and espoused religious beliefs for the purpose of encouraging and or justifying the homicide of Tylee Ryan. The defense requests, hey, give us a plain, concise, and definite written statement outlining the specific facts that the government is relying upon to support the allegation. The defense says we've seen nothing in discovery thus far which is support Lori uh, Vallow's religious beliefs either encouraging or justifying the homicide of Tylee Ryan. As to count two of the indictment, the government alleges that on or between the 8th and 9th of September of 2019 in the county of Madison, state of Idaho, both Chad DeBell and Lori Vallow were concerned in the commission of first degree murder and did aid and abet in the commission of or not being present, advised and encouraged its commission or by commanded, compelled others to commit the crime and did so with malice aforethought. The defense says, hey, we want a plain, concise, and definite written statement outlining the specific facts that the government is relying upon to support the allegation that Lori Vallow aided and abetted in the commission of the alleged crime. The defense requests a plain, concise, and definite written statement outlining the specific facts that the government is relying upon to support the allegation that Lori Vallow advised and encouraged some unnamed person or persons to commit the crime of first-degree murder. Also, the defense would like to know the identity of the unnamed person or persons, as well as their addresses, so the defense can go and interview them. The defense also requests a plain, concise, and definite written statement outlining the specific facts that the government is relying on to support the allegation that Lori Vallow commanded an unnamed person or persons compelling them to commit first-degree murder. And hey, the defense says, we'd like to know the identity of the unnamed person or persons, as well as their addresses, so we can go investigate and interview them. And further, the defense would request clarification on the word concerned contained within the indictment. This seems, they say, uh, to the defense to be cumulative language intended to disguise the language of a conspiracy in a separate charge. The government states in the indictment that both Chad DeBell and Lori Valla were concerned in the commission of the aforementioned crime. While willful, deliberate, and premeditated are all mentioned in the element of the crime of first-degree murder, the word concerned isn't present in the statute. The defense requests clarification on that um, 
particular account. As to count three of the indictment, the lawyers claim that there was an alleged conspiracy to take the life of Joshua Jackson Vallow, here and referred to as J.J. Vallow, and to commit grand theft. They make these same arguments throughout regarding that particular count. Now, when we get to count five, as it relates for this particular bill of particulars, it says the government claims that Chad Daybell, Lori Vallow, and Alex Cox, sometimes between October 2018 and January 15th, conspired to murder Tamara, here and after, Tammy Daybell. The defense is requesting the government clarify this conspiracy as to the time of the conspiracy, as well as give a plain, concise, and definite written statement outlining the specific facts that the government is relying upon to support the allegations that Lori Vallow was involved in a conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree of Tammy Daybell, including, hey, give us some dates and events which might support such conspiracy. The defense also wants that plain and concise statement of the facts that the government is relying upon, which would support Larry Vallow's religious beliefs, either encouraging or justifying the homicide of Tammy Day Bell. Now, the next motion was a motion to prevent the death qualification. Basically, what it says is you should let people on the uh, potential jury that have a problem with the death penalty. Now you must be willing to impose the death penalty to be on a death penalty jury because you have to be able to follow the law. Uh, the judge is going to deny this, um, just like he'll more than likely deny the bill of particular saying, hey, it's in the discovery, uh, go and uh, find it for yourself. We'll just have to wait and see. But here's the motion that I think is of the most interest to me, and it is a motion to compel. And in a discovery dispute, in a motion to compel, normally the defense has gone to the prosecutor and said, hey, um, I think that this particular evidence exists out here, and um, in this case, and it hasn't been turned over, and you'd be the one that would have it, so can you please give it to me? Well, apparently... The defense for Lori Vallow has done this a couple of times and they have been rebuffed specifically. So let's take a look at the motion. And in the motion to compel, it's basically moving for an order compelling the state to turn over all witness statements, including any and all dates and times of witnesses interviewed or interactions, including a detailed statement of what was said at the time of the statement being made. Apparently, both of the attorneys for Lori Vallow have made previous discovery requests. Another specific request was made on September 1st of 2022. The state is of the position that they do not need to turn this information over to the defense because the FBI, not the state investigators, conducted the interviews. However, the interviews were apparently done at the request of the prosecuting attorneys conducted in state law enforcement facilities and were observed by and listened to by the prosecuting attorneys. So the defense is saying we're requesting this order to have the government turn these video and audio recording interviews with witnesses and potential witnesses which have not been provided to the defense. I have to agree with the defense on this particular motion. The government needs to turn it over. Normally, the typical argument you hear from a prosecutor is, well, judge, uh, that's not in my custody and control. Say, for example, the district attorney has one sheriff they report to. They don't work directly for the district attorney, but that case filing would go through that one particular uh, sheriff's office. So the, uh, the prosecutor needs to pick up the phone and say, turn it over. Well, here they're saying, well, you know, sure, we had help, but it's the FBI. We don't have any control over them. And uh, therefore, sorry, we can't get that for you. I say, BS. 
um, the prosecution needs to go get it. If the prosecution sat in on interviews and has not turned that information over, now there may be two sides of this particular story. We haven't seen the response yet. But to make the argument that, yeah, we're going to ask the FBI to conduct this interview, maybe no one else was available. But then we're going to say, oh, well, maybe we didn't like the, the contents of that interview. Maybe it's exculpatory. We're not going to turn it over. Yeah, I told you my rule of prosecution, which I learned from my first boss who was a prosecutor when I was a young prosecutor. And uh, basically it is, um, we're going to turn over everything and we're still going to convict your client. That's the way every prosecutor should act, not play games. And I'm telling you, when they start to play games, when they start to play games and they don't turn stuff over and they engage in this little petty conduct, look out because they got problems with their case somewhere along the lines. And um, I think it's becoming a little evident for a lot of people out there. A lot of prosecutors don't have the skills to handle big cases, um, particularly like this. I'm not aware of anyone in this particular case has a history of handling a case with this much discovery. And half the battle is managing the discovery. So hopefully the judge rules on that particular case. Now, the next motion, the defense filed a 98-page motion, I think it was, basically motion to declare the death penalty unconstitutional. And they go through about 40 years of death penalty jurisprudence and how the death penalty is applied, how jurors are selected, the way jurors uh, engage in this conduct uh, of deciding the death penalty or not. And basically, uh, the jurors that are selected are committed to the death penalty, and so therefore they're more likely to do it, impose the death penalty, and therefore that's not fair. Now, I think we've seen a lot of cases recently where people have said, hey, I am uh, open to the death penalty. They got on a jury. And when they heard all of the evidence, and that's one of the things that um, uh, Mr. Archibald puts in his motion is that, you know, jurors just aren't smart enough to really listen to all the mitigation uh, in the case. Well, as we saw in the Nicholas Cruz case, they listened, whether you like it or not, they listened, and that is the way it works. So this brief is going to be denied. Judge Boyce um, struggles with making a decision about whether the cases should be joined or not joined. Um, can you imagine him actually granting, saying that the Idaho death penalty uh, statute is unconstitutional based upon some academic research somewhere? Yeah, no. This is the stuff that appellate briefs are made of. It is great for uh, appellate purposes to get to the next level, but the trial court is not going to go there. Next on the docket, let's talk about the Idaho college student deaths. All right. Police investigators on the deaths of four University of Idaho students who died in the uh, knife attack earlier this month have insisted at least one of the victims was targeted, but they refused to say which one of the friends could have been the focus of the attack. So the Idaho State Police spokesman, Aaron Snell, said it is possible all four victims could have been intended targets of the November 13th stabbings. He confirmed that investigators have gathered evidence that suggests the killings were targeted, but admitted they are no closer to identifying the murderer. He said, quote, we still believe it was a target attack based upon the evidence at the scene and how everything developed. That's what we know. We believe that's accurate, he stated. Now, he refused to say which of the victims the police believe to be the target, um, describing that as a, quote, 
delicate situation, end quote. He said specifically that part of the ongoing investigation, that's a real delicate question. And when we're able to say that, or if we're able to say that, we'll definitely do that. It's very similar to the whole stocking, right? Potentially, if there was a stalker, that would be somebody of extreme interest. You can't lay out all of your cards at once, he said. We're trying to find the various potential participants. Law enforcement investigators did say uh, regarding the uh, four murders of the uh, University of Idaho students that they do not believe the killings are related to unsolved stabbings in Washington State and Oregon. For those of you who do not know, on November 13th, authorities received a 911 call at an off-campus apartment in Moscow, Idaho, where officers found four students savagely stabbed to death. Madison Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kernodal. Now, thus far, police have not identified a suspect, as we noted, or located a murder weapon, prompting some to speculate whether the perpetrator had killed before. Speculation. The Moscow Police Department on Friday said it had received numerous inquiries about a 1999 double stabbing in Pullman, Washington, and a 2021 double stabbing in Salem, Oregon. They said while these cases share similarities with the King Street homicides, there does not appear to be any evidence to support the cases are related. The Oregon case, the unknown assailant attacked Travis and Jamelin Juton while they were sleeping around 3 a.m. on August 13th of 2021. Travis attempted to defend himself and fought back, but he ultimately died from his injuries. His wife, Jamelin, uh, then only 24, was stabbed 19 times and actually survived. Now, details about the 1999 stabbing in Pullman, Washington, um, are not generally available, but the police say, don't worry about it. We've got this, not related. Also, police said they have received at least 260 digital media submissions from community members and that investigators have collected 113 pieces of physical evidence, which are now being analyzed by the Idaho State Police Crime Lab. Now, the governor there has allocated up to $1 million in state emergency funds to help pay for the investigation. And apparently police work through the holiday weekend and are putting in overtime to investigate this case. What investigators have been able to confirm is that they believe that the victims were stabbed to death between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. on the second and third floors of the residence, and the assailant did not attack two roommates that were on the first floor. Police say they do not believe the surviving roommates had anything to do with the murders. Police have also cleared other individuals who interacted with the victims in the hours before they died. Most students are out of the city for the Thanksgiving break, and they will be allowed to finish their semester remotely if they do so desire. Now, the Moscow police have denied reports that the victims were bound and gagged uh, when they were stabbed to death on November 13th, and an autopsy found no signs of any bondage. Now, Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen lived in the house with the three female victims, but miraculously survived the attack, only to find their friends deceased the next morning. Both girls had been out of town separately on Saturday night and returned home about 1 a.m. before the other four victims came home from the night out. Now, police received a call at noon on November 13th and concluded that the four had been stabbed to death up to nine hours before the killing occurred between 3 and 4 a.m. There were also no signs of forced entry. Police say there's no reason to believe the deaths of the four college students are related to the recent animal deaths in the area or to a dog found skinned from head to uh, tail on October 21st. Investigators have ruled out that the quadruple murder is not 
tied to other knife stabbings in Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, despite announcing last week that they were probing a possible link between the student's death and a similar case in Oregon, where we talked about the uh, man was stabbed by a crazed lunatic, apparently. Authorities have also ruled out a man who was seen speaking to Kaylee and Maddie at a food truck, which is where they were caught on surveillance footage uh, for the last time alive. Officials say they may believe that multiple perpetrators are responsible for the crime. So as you can see, uh, this case is rapidly moving to cold case status. The police, they have nothing. There's gonna be some sort of physical evidence that is going to have to come in to this case um, or be discovered, I think that's actually going to help to solve it. Short of somebody confessing to it, which you never know, it could happen, but it's going to have to be some sort of uh, DNA physical evidence. Maybe the uh, perpetrator was injured in the attack, but it would seem like somebody knew what they were doing, probably came down the uh, hill uh, by the house. It was unlocked. They seemed to have known where they were going, what, where to go, who they were looking for. So, it just seems uh, very odd to me, but the police thus far really have nothing. And if they do, they're keeping it very close to their chest. Next on the docket, that's right, the Delphi mayor, he's now the prosecutor. Shane Evans was the mayor of Delphi when Abby Williams and Libby German were murdered in this uh, now high profile case. Well, now he's been uh, tasked with prosecuting Richard Allen, the man charged with two counts of murder in connection with the teen's death. A court filing revealed uh, that uh, Evans was listed as one of the prosecuting attorneys, and he had resigned as the Delphi mayor back in 2020 to become the Carroll County Chief Deputy Prosecutor. Uh, now, Mr. Evans was a Delphi native and was just 25 years old when he was elected as an independent in 2015 to become one of the youngest mayors in the state. In his letter of resignation, Mr. Evans indicated he intended to complete his mayoral term but couldn't pass up an opportunity to join the prosecutor's office. Now, as a quick recap, the uh, Indiana State Police announced the arrest of Allen's arrest on October 31st of 2022, more than five years after the murders. They have not uh, commented publicly on his connection to the uh, case and court documents related to his arrest are still under seal. However, and the request is being made by the prosecutor. Now, Judge Fran Gull heard from prosecutors and defense attorneys during a hearing last week to determine if those records would remain out of the public view. Judge Gull did not immediately decide on releasing the full probable cause affidavit or even a redacted version. Now, um, the prosecutors also alleged in that court proceeding that uh, Mr. Allen may not have acted alone and may not be the sole suspect and the defense attorneys asked for a bail hearing that would allow him to be released on his own recognizance or in the alternative to set a reasonable bail. Uh, Gull was uh, granted that request for a bail hearing and that is now set for February 17th of 2023. Next on the docket, Alex Murdoch. Did the prosecution destroy evidence? Well, guess what? The attorneys for the accused double murderer, Alex Murdoch, have asked a state judge to prohibit testimony at trial about blood spatter patterns on Murdoch's t-shirt and want to get copies of all communications published between the state 
and one of their scientific witnesses. Now, in their 96-page motion that they filed late last week, the uh, attorneys for Alex Murdoch contend that an April leak of information purportedly from a state's scientific witness about high-velocity impact spatter was improperly shared with a news website called Fitz News. The motion also contends that the state, meaning the prosecutors or investigators, destroyed in bad faith evidence that the defense argue would have helped prove Mr. Murdoch's innocence. Now, State Law Enforcement Division Chief Mark Keel said that they're reviewing the motion and they'll respond at an appropriate time. Now, the leaked evidence uh, contained in the report, quoting sources, uh, the attorneys for Alex Murdoch say, came from Tom Bevel. Now, he is a retired Oklahoma City police officer who runs Bevel, Gardner, and Associates. I've actually used these individuals they, they're like a, it's like a clearinghouse for expert witnesses. Um, if they don't have it, they'll find you one and everything kind of goes through them. Anyway, the attorneys write that uh, Mr. Bevel has a degree in administration of criminal justice, but no academic credentials in any scientific discipline. Now, the state retained Mr. Bevel to opine that the white cotton t-shirt Mr. Murdoch wore the night Maggie and Paul were murdered is stained with high-velocity blood spatter, most likely resulting from shooting Paul, the attorney wrote. However, they argue in their motion that SLED's confirmatory blood testing results were negative for human blood in the area of the shirt where Mr. Bevel opines blood spatter is present. Ooh, now it's getting good. Further, they allege that SLED's DNA report on the shirt's do not identify Paul's DNA on the shirt, and in the motion argues that it excludes Paul as a contributor of DNA found on two sets sections of the shirt. Neither the defense nor Mr. Bevel have been able to perform any tests on the shirt because the state destroyed it, the motion alleges. Mr. Bevel's first report to the state that he prepared emphatically said, the shirt contained no stains consistent with back spatter resulting from a gunshot. The motion adds, yet for some reason, without any additional evidence, he changed his opinion entirely after an in-person visit from lead sled investigator David Owen, and now opines that the shirt has over 100 stains consistent with back spatter from a gunshot. This is the legal issue. The items were destroyed in bad faith, and it was exculpatory, which means that it could potentially clear Mr. Murdoch. Ooh, that could be really bad for the prosecution. That means that the case could, in theory, be dismissed. Probably not. But the court could say, you're not going to get to introduce any evidence regarding this alleged blood spatter, high-velocity blood spatter. And I, some people said, oh, Scott, how could you not know about high-velocity blood spatter? I'm telling you, in 27 years, I've never seen that come up in a uh, report and I've handled lots of gunshot cases. And the book that I consulted with uh, on our live show one night, you know how much it gives? It literally three sentences, three sentences to high velocity blood splatter. Not very common. Hmm. And now it appears it maybe didn't exist at all. Hmm. Now, the motion included a list of evidence taken by SLED and photos of the white T-shirt Murdoch was wearing the night his wife and son were shot to death with two different weapons, a rifle and a shotgun. Now, Murdoch is accused of killing his wife Maggie and youngest son Paul 
on their 1700 acre estate on the night of June 7th, 2021. And obviously Mr. Murdoch has pled not guilty to the charges and he remains in jail and he is scheduled to go to trial on January 23rd, just right around the corner. Now this battle of over different kinds of scientific evidence from blood splatter to cell phone location data is expected to be a major part of the upcoming trial since there are no eyewitnesses or video of the killing. Now, attachments to the defense motion give additional information generated by the Bevel firm, such as Paul was shot with birdshot, tiny metal balls, and the smallest pellet used in a shotgun shell. Now, 48 birdshot pellets were removed from Paul's left shoulder and his head. Birdshot is generally not fatal, except at a very close range. Five expended cartridge cases were recovered, including two on the dirt by Maggie's right side. The defense motion also briefly narrates Murdoch's version of the events, saying he drove to the dog kennel on his property where he found his wife and son shot and they were non-responsive. Murdoch touched both victims in checking them for life signs Alec stated he did try to roll Paul over, but could not. He states in the motion, he called 911 to report the deaths and drove to the house to get a shotgun for protection and drove back to the scene to wait for first responders to arrive. Now, Murdoch, in a motion filed on November 17th, said he was not home at the time of the murders. And the state attorney general's office said in court filings that the murders took place after 8.30 p.m. and before 10.06 p.m. Murdoch's alibi says he was on the Mosul property from 8.30 p.m. to shortly after 9 p.m., but left to visit his mother, who has dementia in a nearby town called Varnville. At the time he left, he asserts his wife and son were alive. The motion says that on his 20-minute drive to Varnville, Murdoch had cell phone conversations with his oldest son, Buster, his brother, John Marvin Murdoch, and his sister-in-law, Liz Murdoch. The alibi also states he spoke to Chris Wilson, a longtime friend and lawyer, and C.B. Rowe. Shortly after 9.20 p.m., Murdoch arrived at his mother's home, according to the alibi stating that he visited with his mother and the nurse's aide, Michelle Shelley Smith. The alibi says he stayed at the home until 9.45 p.m. and while on the trip back to Mosul, spoke to Wilson again. Murdoch's alibi says he returned to the property shortly around 10 p.m. and discovered Maggie and Paul's body approximately five minutes later. I'm telling you, this one's going to get good. And you know it's getting good simply by the sheer number of documentaries that people like HBO and Netflix are doing on this case. And we said it was going to be big when the boat crash first occurred years ago. So I know some people weren't interested in this case, but I'm telling you, it's getting good. Good lawyering, good stuff. I'm telling you, good stuff. Finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Now, during an argument, uh, early Thanksgiving morning, our um, dumb criminal of the day apparently um, threw a sex toy at his girlfriend, leaving the woman with a bruise on her torso, according to the police, who also noted that they did not confiscate the alleged weapon used in the alleged domestic assault. Now, police say Christopher Pasitio was 45 and that his 33-year-old victim girlfriend were inside a room at the Sun Island Motel in St. Petersburg around 4.40 a.m. when a verbal argument turned violent. Pasito was packing his suitcase to leave the room when he began throwing the victim's items out of the luggage. 
During the process, the woman told police Mr. Presido hit her with a sex toy on her torso, leaving a bruise. When questioned, Pasito reportedly admitted to throwing the items, but doesn't recall exactly what item. I guess that would mean that there was more than one of the sex toys in question. Well, like I said, the um, further uh, toy that did the damage, the crime scene weapon, was not described in the affidavit. Now, the six foot two, 300-pound Pasito, who uh, cops say was under the influence of alcohol, was arrested for domestic battery. He was able to bond out uh, the day after Thanksgiving by posting a $1,000 bond on a misdemeanor case, and he cannot have any contact with the victim. I guess he wasn't that thankful at 4.40 a.m., intoxicated and throwing things around the room. He couldn't think of a single thing that he was thankful for that morning. Maybe he can be thankful for his freedom. All right. Thanks for watching. I know it was kind of a long show, but a lot of information since we didn't have a show the last couple of days. So wanted to get that all to you. Have a wonderful day, not just a good day, and we'll see you next time on Crime Talk. Mm -hmm.